You are now tuned in to Science for the Culture podcast. It's your hosts, Drs. Devin, Inyate, and Alicia here, and we're three hella smart, hella black women on a mission to deliver you no-cap science. Don't worry, though. You don't need a PhD to be put on game. We've got that part covered. Just sit back, relax, and catch our geeky vibe. Trust us. It's lit. All right, so Alicia, how you doing, girl? I'm pretty good. You know, my mm-hmm. son's been in daycare. I don't got a whole lot to worry about there. And work is picking up. So I'm doing pretty good. Devin, how are you? Life is good this way. You know, all the days are blurring together. <laughs> so I just wake up and go to bed and wake up and go to bed. And, what is you know, today? Life Friday, is life, right? Tuesday? I don't know. <laughs> I'm here. all the same. <laughs> I mean, I'm working every day, it seems like. You know, no play, all work. Because oh. <laughs> they blend. Yes. So. <laughs> I get it. Uh-huh. I get it. Dr. Nyate, how are things going your way? Oh, girl, I am. I'm hanging in here. Um, mm-hmm. The children, you know, being at home in the summers is real different uh, these days. Um, right. But I think nowhere to go. Right, girl. Just we out you. We out you for real. Um, but I think also, too, a lot's kind of been on my mind. I don't know about you guys. Kind of everything that. We've been seeing over the last several weeks, I mean, we're already, you know, on the kind of the worst Jumanji game you could ever imagine with (laughs) the pandemic, right? Um, (laughs) But we've also got, you know, all of the unrest and the protests and kind of all of that that's happening around the country. Um, Mm -hmm. And... You know, for science and the, for science for the culture podcast, I think for all of us collectively, we kind of felt there's so much going on in the world. We wanted to kind of pump the brakes and kind of just really yeah. give the country some time to rest and to to sit in Absolutely. those feelings. Um, yeah. But we wanted to amplify our voices um, by bringing content to our community. So we're here kind of pushing forward you know and I think Mm -hmm. that one of the things that kind of rang true to me is in recent weeks we've been seeing movements like black in the ivory shut down stem and Mm -hmm. that kind of was a moment to say what is the role of science in this Alicia I don't know what you think about that what are those movements, though? Black in the Ivory and Shut Down STEM, real quick. Like, what are those about? So, uh, Black in the Ivory and Shut Down STEM are hashtags that kind of went viral in recent weeks, okay. really trying to have the scientific community as a whole not get uh-huh. back to business as usual. Okay. Um, and to really sit in the midst of all of the unrest that's going on in the country because, you know, we're scientists. We yeah. know that the scientific community feels it has to have this objective truth. Uh, Dr. Devin, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I was going to comment on that. And I think science is objective. Um, You know, a lot of other things in life is subjective. We really care about opinions. But the thing that makes science work is the fact that we have facts and carefully organized experiments. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, nobody really knows what to do where you have something like, you know, systemic racism, which can be hard to prove. You know, sometimes facts when it comes to how you feel in a situation can be really hard to prove and challenging yeah. for some. So I think it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's where those microaggressions come in is where this those things that are that are hard and if not impossible to prove, but we feel them every yeah. day, you know, we go through it. Yeah. So I think it's really important to um, draw attention to that, especially in these professional spaces 
Um, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, we are definitely underrepresented, you know, in our field. Yeah, and, and I think that Black in the Ivory really kind of speaks to that, being Black in predominantly white spaces for scientists, all of us, each of us, we know what that feels like. Um, and with the shutdown STEM, that's really kind of forcing people to say, you cannot continue to ignore race any longer. We need to have the scientific community as a whole recognize that's dope. that this is something that's important. Yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really loved that. Um, and that's kind of where I'm sitting, you know, yeah. um, how I'm feeling. So it is what it is. Right. This kind of reminded me of this book I read once and I checked it out. It sat in my uh, desk for a while. So I didn't read it at first. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it is a library. You're like, I got to get yeah, this book. Girl. I got to read it. And then it's like uh, a paperweight. Before but you know it, the due date d- comes up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so eventually I read it. It's called Ebony and Ivory. And it talks about race, slavery, and oh, like wow. the history of American universities by Craig Wilder. Okay. And it really discusses a lot of the major universities. I'm not going to name drop here, but you know, okay. if, if you send me a DM, I might tell you what's in there. But you know, <laughs> but honestly, it really talks about how a lot of slaves were actually, you know, of course, the people that built the universities, how a lot of right. the statues, which we've seen statues get mm-hmm. towed down recently. Yes. But a lot mm-hmm. of these, yeah. A lot of these statues are basically of people who had slaves or, you know, were had some kind of tie to racism. So it's really interesting to see it that way. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I get it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to check that book out, girl. Yeah, girl. You're have to give me that, give me that link. Mm-hmm. Get the one month um, checkout and then read it in the last week. <laughs> right. <laughs> like <I did>. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that brings us kind of to the objective of this podcast, right? So, you know, here at Science for the Culture, we have two primary objectives, right? Yeah. We want to elevate no cap science and everybody knows that we, you know, no caps, no lies. We Mm -hmm. want to really try to bolster that um, objective truth that science aims for. And we also want to promote and boost science literacy in our community Mm -hmm. because that's important for us as black people. So important. Um, Yes. And so... I think that, you know, I don't know about you ladies, but, you know, that's what we are aiming to give listeners. I think that our listeners deserve to really have those two elements. Dr. Devin, what you thinking? Yeah, I mean, we're totally on board. We're all scientists, but we are also black women. So we understand. And even more, you know, if you're a statistical or number person, there was a study Um, done, I think, in 2019 from the Pew Research Center, in which they Mm -hmm. gave about 11 questions. So they're generic questions. We can put the link for the survey in our show notes. Let's do that. But they're questions, yeah, just about science and, uh, uh, you know, like, how do you analyze this particular short answer question? And out of the 11 questions, they found out when they asked white people um, those questions, they got an average score of about 76 but when you ask black people, they only got about 3.7 correct. So huh. that is, mm. that's crazy, right? And it's, mm-hmm. you know, questions yeah. that, you know, we've had a chance to to look at. So what did y'all think about the survey? I know y'all completed it. Yeah. So for me, like I took the questions, well, I took the first question and I was kind of confused, like, wait, is this the answer? Like, I, you know, I, it felt like such a natural thing to answer. And so I really kind of sat there second guessing myself for a second because I was like, wait, what is, like, I is it really asking smart. me this? 
you proud <laughs> you yes. beautiful right? you are important like I really was like wait a minute so I kind of was taken aback but then once I got through that first second guessing of myself I was like oh no okay this is legit it's fine but the fact that I was looking at those numbers it was so alarming to me Dr. Alicia what do you think yeah I took the quiz too um yeah and uh, I think I got a nine out of the 11 um there's so much here to unpack I mean I mean we're not going to be sitting here talking about this the whole time but like just the fact that um that blacks answered um well roughly 3.7 correctly I mean right Mm -hmm. like out of 11. But there's a lot of people of, in my yeah, family who I can think of who I would say don't have a good, you know, science background and who, you mm-hmm. know, are not very literate in science. So I think that what we're doing with this mm-hmm. podcast is really important for people like that. Do y'all have people that you know, mm-hmm. either of you who kind of, you know, right. don't really care for science or know oh, much yeah. about it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and the thing to think about it is too, like, I think all of us have all talked about, you know, previously stories where we have relatives that call us and ask us about medical questions Listen. or doctor's visits Listen, and things like that. Doctor doctors. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and then doctors. also too, I think it, again, it speaks to, you know, a couple of the things that we're going to top, we're going to tackle in today's topic, which is the, un, you know, the lack of sometimes understanding of some of the things that are going on in the doctor's office not being or feeling empowered to ask certain questions of the doctor and understanding their diagnosis and prognosis and what to make of that. Right. And then overall trust of doctors and scientists and in the medical and scientific community. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important for us to do as, as people of color, Dr. Alicia, I know you've got some stats on that when it comes to the importance of science literacy for our community. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can talk about, you know, science literacy and what our family members do and don't know, but it is no joke. I mean, science literacy is literally good for our health. Um, and when mm-hmm. considering that mm-hmm. black people have the highest mortality rate and shortest survival of any U.S. racial or ethnic group when it comes to wow. cancer, I mean, mm-hmm. like, what could be the cause of that? What do you guys think? That's really disappointing. One thing I was thinking of was, you know, even if you ask your friends, who's your primary care physician? You yeah. know, I think that's like a little poll. Yeah. Like yes. in your group chat, yes. say, hey, girls, or what's up, homies? Like, yes. who's your primary mm-hmm. care physician? I didn't have one for years. <laughs> and they're going to years. say urgent care. Yep. <laughs> I didn't have one for years. Yeah. <laughs> And it's just, I don't, you know, it's, I think it's a long history that blacks in America have had with medical professionals or scientists, you know, and that's one thing that we're really Mm going to dive into this episode is really kind of talking about like this history of hating, like how people have really used us to push their scientific goals or questions about humanity or how people feel pain or yeah. whatever it is, yeah. you know, and, and we're exactly. tired of it. And we're like, nah, I'm not going to go see my doctor. Yeah. There's that. And then there's also the scientific racism, which is where mm-hmm. these old white men, sorry to put it that mm-hmm. way, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have, mm-hmm. have tried to, um, to, to prove with science that black people are inferior to white people. Mm-hmm. Do y'all know anything yep. about that? Of course. And I think that what we want to address is the fact that science in its goal to have objective truth be the the centering or anchoring point 
likes to neglect the fact that it played a primary in primary role in dehumanizing um, black people. Yes, yeah. right. And so that that's kind of what we're going to talk a little bit about today. Just really kind of wrestling with some of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they provided mm-hmm. quote unquote proof that really threw gasoline on a on a fire, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Like with and, and some of the things about uh, scientific racism that is just so interesting to me is that they really had these very even though they were like prominent scientists of their day, they really had very pseudoscientific beliefs when it came mm-hmm. to that racial inferiority, like things like phrenology, craniometry, like really looking at black people and saying, oh, uh, you are a cross between a chimpanzee and a Greek. So yada, yada. This right. is what wow. your intellectual. Oh, yeah, it, it's, it's bananas. Dr. Devin. Yeah. What so you, thinking, you mentioned girl? Franiology and craniology or something like that. <laughs> Girlology, girl. Girl, I need you to break it down. Now I'm smart, but I'm not that I must not be that smart. So just help me figure out what do those two words mean for our listeners and for myself. So, <laughs> I do so, science, but not that science. <laughs> well, so phrenology actually um is rooted in anthropology, right? Okay. So if you if you break down phrenology um, it's coming out of like biological or physical anthropology. So okay. we know that anthro- anthropology again is not a pseudoscience, mm-hmm. right? Okay. But okay. phrenology and craniometry are, they're basically just a detailed study of like the shape and size of the head. Right. And, and whether or not these bumps sizes mm-hmm. and all of that have any indication of either character intellect or mental ability right so you're saying that back in the day these scientists or different scientists that you'll probably mention and tell us about actually use quote-unquote science to say that black people were lesser than oh yes girl yes yes yeah so the shape and size (laughs) of their heads though yes yes Mm -hmm. and so i mean and and this literally was like the primary science of the day so Mm -hmm. like it goes all the back, all the way back to like um, Samuel A. Cartwright. I don't know if you guys ever heard of him, but he Who's um, actually. So he was a Louisiana physician, actually. Okay. And he coined a term called drapetomania, which basically you got these big words was, today. You going to break oh, it yeah, down? I'm coming. I'm coming <laughs> to you, teach you, Dr. Alicia. I'm feeling less <laughs> pointed at. Right. <laughs> Draptomania, let's go. <laughs> yes. So he came and coined this phrase that was a way to describe the sickness that enslaved people were suffering from that made them want to walk or run away. What? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And he believed that they had small brains and bar- barbaric oh. behavior. Oh. And needed to be cured through submission. So wow. that so yes, girl. Wow. He's and, all but, off. but the but the reality of it is is that they made him at what is now known as Tulane University Professor of the Diseased Negro is oh. what they was his official title. Yes. See? Um and SMS. he is not right, and he is not the only one. I mean, that that pervasive sort of pseudoscientific ideal about black and for inferiority would continue to grow traction and really take off mm-hmm. um and there's lots of people who ended up having ideals that were in a similar vein yeah yeah so i mean it's crazy 
I mean, you had Darwin, Thomas Jefferson, all kinds of folks. Mm -hmm. You know, I have heard of one person. So James Watson, which a lot of people probably heard of him as being one of the tag team members of Watson and Crick. And helping to discover the structure of DNA, which is a double helix. Although Mm -hmm. he's actually just credited for that. There's actually a woman named um, Rosalind Franklin. Franklin, Yeah, girl. girl. That's my girl. Exactly. Her name. (laughs) The Mm -hmm. future is female. So she actually was the person to discover it but you know because of sexism let's do another ism for the episode but because of sexism you know and other reasons she wasn't given the credit for it but regardless he Mm -hmm. won a Nobel Prize there's statues and buildings and all kinds of stuff named after him but y'all I'm 2007 which was what what 13 years ago he and you know Mm -hmm. he's he's an older gentleman at this point seasoned uh right he made comments that white people were genetically more intelligent than black people. Fix it, Jesus. Right. Make it make sense. Right. <laughs> and this is the guy that, like, again, with him having gotten credit for the structure of the DNA helix and being a whole molecular biologist, I'm just like, bruh, really? Bruh. Really? Bruh. Exactly. <laughs> and he said there are, quote, dim prospects for the continent of Africa and its descendants. So, you know, and oh, the crazy, mm. that's so crazy. But the thing about it is this person has had a seat at the table for what, 40, 50, 60 years. So that's mm-hmm. the comments he made. Com- he was comfortable saying in a recorded session. What about those behind mm-hmm. the door conversations right. or people that didn't get opportunities because right. of that thought. So exactly. that's just crazy. Exactly. exactly. And he doubled down on those comments later. Somebody else sure tried did. to ask him like, hey, and he was like, I said what I said. Oh, did he really? <laughs> I mean, he's old. Yes, he did. He old. That's, that's, yes, that's, he did. that's old people for He doubled you. down, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's, that's the person that I've heard of that's like a familiar name. We see it all the time in our kids' textbooks. But, yes. you know, he has some issues too. Y'all know about Darwin though, right? Yeah. So, Darwin, Mm -hmm. who is regarded as the father of evolution, he was a notable biologist who believed that white races were evolutionarily more advanced than black people. Hmm. Oh, Mm. well, and get this, his biases (laughs) also included women. Oh, well, that's not that's not surprising either. I mean, the list honestly can go on and on on and on. on. I mean, even our founding father and former U.S. president has had a very interesting past with regard to what he felt mm-hmm. which president? was inferior. Uh, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, girl. Thomas Jefferson, girl. Um, and it was so funny because um, Benjamin Banneker, who is a self-taught mathematician and astronomer, went on ahead and collected him something mm-hmm. crazy mm-hmm. and wrote him a letter <laughs> about his beliefs of the inferiority oh, of blacks. Oh, wow. Yes, child. He collected him (laughs) real quick (laughs) and sent him an almanac that he actually constructed by hand and was like, let me tell you something about uh, the intelligence of black folks. So he collected him. But there's lots of folks, too. I mean, Josiah uh, Clark Knott, who was a physician and anthropologist, Charles Murray. Mm -hmm. And he actually wrote a book called The Bell Curve um, that he actually talked about the notion of inferiority of intelligence of blacks and he actually sat on the board of a whole scholarly journal y'all wow that is peer-reviewed called mankind quarterly Mm -hmm. man basically (laughs) yes mankind quarterly that uses ideals through cultural anthropology evolution linguistics and archaeology and intelligence to kind of look at uh basically all of these ways in which 
there are intelligence differences between races. And this publication actually began to add credibility to challenge the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Mm. Um, Wow. Yeah. Dr. Alicia. Yeah, I just want to say that, you know, how um, a lot of people will say um, against the whole like Black Lives Matter or whatever, that slavery happened so long ago. But here you have people in the scientific community, you know, yeah. as recently as here, the, I see, you know, 1962 for um, for 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 uh, for Watson and just yeah. you said 13 years ago where he said that thing. It's mm-hmm. like we're still battling this to this day. Yeah. So yeah, mm-hmm. they had, you know, Jim Crow and yeah, they had slavery or whatever, but we still mm-hmm. deal with this because these ideals are still out there and in the scientific mm-hmm. community of all places. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. Yeah. yeah, it is really unfortunate to see. But I think one thing that's very hopeful is um, recently in the 2000s, we had the Human Genome Project, right? And that's where we actually broke down the genome, right? The genes that make up the proteins, which make up characteristics. Uh-huh. We broke down the genome of humans to really understand what are the genes. And it turns out mm-hmm. that humans are 999 I'm sorry, y'all. Get my math wrong. 99.9% the same when it comes to our DNA. So that okay. means yes. that, yeah, 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 yeah. So regardless like, of race or whatever. Regardless of race. Race is a social construct. That's something that has been put out into a society, but there's no genetic basis for um, for race. Now, of course, there are different phenotypical or physical traits that people have that are that last 0.1%. And that can, you know, make us look different complexions and different heights. And yeah, those type of things. And Mm -hmm. again, that 0.1% does have some ancestral ties. So you can see, you know, different regions that you're from, they're going to have similar traits. Um, But yeah, there's no biological basis for uh, race or racism. So it's really, really interesting to see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And y'all want to hear a funny story about (laughs) when I first heard (laughs) that humans are 99.9% the same? Yes. Okay. So I first heard this from (laughs) your boy, Bill Clinton. (laughs) Do y'all remember? Really? Yes. Why do I know (laughs) this memory? I don't have any important (laughs) memories, but I have this memory of seeing (laughs) Bill Clinton. He was the president. Um, uh-huh. It was the 2000s, and he was giving a speech talking about the Human Genome Project. And I remember watching Bill Clinton say, "Americans, we are 99.9 percent." You know, like this whole Bill Clinton thing. <laughs> Your boy Billy. I'm like, you know, Billy. Bill Clinton's a sigma, you know, so he be he part of the divine nine honorary member. Is he? he is. He's an honorary member of uh, Phi Beta Sigma. Out. Girl, blue five. I'm about to look that <laughs> up. That is hilarious. You know. So that's my that's my fun uh, story that I have from my childhood. I remember maybe that was my trajectory to get me into science. Seeing Bill Clinton, say maybe that. girl. I don't know. Look at that divine intervention. Mm-hmm. That is too funny. Yep. <laughs> well, and I, I think it's important though that we're having these conversations about science's role in this again because we don't like to look at that. You know, we want to remain this objective science sort of so, you know that sort of deal. But yeah. when it comes down to it, you know, there is a role that the scientific community has played in characterizing um, people of color in a certain way. And I think that because of that characterization, it has also fostered lots of uh, fear and distrust of science scientists and even physicians. Yeah. Um, And so, 
In the black community, yes. And I know that, you know, as black women, I think that we can definitely think of some very poignant examples of that, right? Um, mm-hmm. What do you guys think about that? Do you feel like you can think of some examples of feeling like, oh, man, I can understand and I can see why people of color are stressed about going to the doctor or don't like physicians or whatever the case may be? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, like, we we haven't talked about it, but, you know, the, the black... Um, uh, the mortality rate of black women um, oh, yeah. you know, in, in, mm-hmm. in labor, you know? Yes. Um, I mean, that's just bananas. Personally, like, I know that when I was pregnant, thankfully there were a couple of doctors that I would go to who were great about listening to me, but I had one who, it was like everything I told her, she thought I was like making something up. Mm. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, so... And, and it turned out like, you know, you never when, when you have like several doctors like that in the same practice or whatever, you know, they have right. you go to each one because you don't know who's going to deliver your baby. And of course, she was mm-hmm. the one who delivered the baby. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Lord. yeah. But everything went pretty smoothly on that day. But it was like, um, you know, because I, I wanted to get an epidural that day and everything. And it was again one of those things where it's like, you know, mm-hmm. um, I wasn't able to get it. Part of that was because my son came very, very quickly. But the other part, I mean, like. There's a whole lot that goes on with trying to get mm-hmm. an epidural in the hospital and you got to wait. It's mm-hmm. only but so many anesthesiologists on staff or whatever. But mm-hmm. I had to, I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't no, no epidural for me. Yeah. And just also kind of, you know, going back to Dr. Alicia and her experience with her physician and kind of feeling like, you know, I, I wasn't quite getting the attention that I was getting. I think again, if we're, if we're talking about historical haters, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. um, one of the very controversial figures in modern gynecology is Dr. J. Marion Sims. Mm-hmm. Who's that? Yeah. Yes. So he was a um, gynecologist who okay. was touted as one of the most famous surgeons of the 19th century. Okay. And um, he developed a lot of modern uh, gynecological tools um, and examination procedures. Mm -hmm. And he also had uh, a procedure that he perfected called the vesico-vaginal fistula. Okay. And it was a repairing of that. And basically, um, vesico is kind of the the bladder. Vaginal, Mm -hmm. obviously, is the female uh, genitalia yeah. and then fistulas are these holes in between them. So basically he pioneered a surgical technique to repair that hole. Okay. okay. But the, the controversy with him is that he used the technique and perfected it on black women, enslaved black women what? without anesthesia. Whoa, yes. whoa, whoa. Yes. And so there was, hold on. Yes. Poking out. I just want to, he poked a hole. <laughs> no, he didn't poke a hole. Okay. He repaired a hole. So like stitching up a hole between no the bladder anesthesia. and the vagina. Yes. Oh no anesthesia. Gosh. I know. Whew. I feel the pain right now. That's rough. I felt it. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, and there's lots of controversy over him, right? Because lots of people came to defend him saying that he was a man of his time. He wasn't a cruel person. Listen. He did a very good thing with the mm. development of all of these tools. Mm, he no. couldn't use anesthesia no. because it wasn't developed no. at the time. And I think that, you know, in the interest of no cap science, we can acknowledge that objectively some of these things have some merit, like the whole anesthesia thing. Right. But the thing that really presses me about him Mm -hmm. 
is that he started these surgeries around 1844, 1845. Okay. Anesthesia had its first breakthrough uh, in uh, October of 1846. He didn't okay. perfect the technique, though, until 1849. Right. Years and, and that's years the, of people yeah. going through that. And he yeah. did these surgeries on a group of enslaved women. Oh and one of them, her mm-hmm. name was Anarcha, I believe. Anarcha. Mm-hmm. He had performed 30 oh, no. attempts to repair it on her. Wow. That's really sad. 30. Three zero mm-hmm. uh, in the case of those four years. Mm-hmm. Do you know oh if anything, gosh. it was like if it affected her fertility? Because, again, you have to think about, like, the roots of racism. And not only is it that black people don't feel pain or we're, um, you know, less than, but also it's thinking of, like, if I destroy or, you know, cause damage to her reproductive organs, it doesn't matter because, you know, we don't want more black people anyway. You know, like, that has to have an effect. Right. Well, and I don't know if that was necessarily his issue. I think for him, he felt like this particular ailment was probably painful enough that the women probably weren't, you know, Mm. wanting to have sex during that time. Yeah. Um, But I think even still, the fact that it took four years and 30 surgeries just on one of the group of patients that he was perfecting the surgical technique on Mm -hmm. was pretty eye-opening Yikes. and that was the question that i kept saying if he, he said in his memoir he scoured the country mm-hmm. trying to find as many cases that he could find um to try to fix this issue and i thought really to me it sounded more of an ego thing he didn't want to be defeated he thought he could fix it in six months but it took him four years and wow. several women mm-hmm. um so i don't know but it you know i think one of the things that he said in a talk when they he was asked about it mm-hmm. is that he was talking about he never resorted to the use of uh, anesthetics in the fis- fistula operations because they were not painful enough to justify the trouble oh, wow. and the trouble. risk of a t- yes mm-hmm. the trouble and risk of attending administration. He tried it on himself <laughs> to determine how painful Girl. it was. I mean, Girl, listen, oh and gosh. people just said that that was a mistaken calculus of suffering, which is usually an anesthesia term to say, oh, you know, mm-hmm. I miscalculated how much suffering the person was experiencing. Wow. But we know historically. We know this same group of folks who subscribe to scientific racism believe or believed rather mm-hmm. since they're not here yeah. that black people did not feel pain the same way as white people because of their premature nervous systems because of the sizes of their brains Yikes. so if you if you want to characterize him as a man of his time mm-hmm. you can also say that men of his time felt yeah. that way mm-hmm. but this whole man of his time thing i have to say like i really think it's bs because mm-hmm. in every stage of history there have been people there were abolitionists during that time white abolitionists saying that what y'all are doing is wrong like and trying mm-hmm. to help slaves to get to freedom and things like yeah. that so all you have to do is have a mind of your own mm-hmm. to be able to look and see like this is not right but when mm-hmm. you can convince yourself you're evil enough to be able mm-hmm. to convince yourself like oh these are <laughs> inferior people they're not even people at all you know they're three-fifths of a person they're they're yeah. you know they have smaller brains than us they're not even mm-hmm. worth anything mm-hmm. you know they're basically animals or whatever it's like mm-hmm. really 
Yeah. Mm. And thinking of mm-hmm. the context too, you know, it's not just, these are not isolated events. This is in the context of the American history, which we know has deep racism yeah. roots, yeah. you know? So if yeah. the government mm-hmm. is saying this and if the politicians are saying it and the doctors and the mm-hmm. lawyers, you know, I mean, everyone around them is coming up with these thoughts. It's, they're just one drop in the huge bucket of America's I know, racism. I, no, absolutely, absolutely. And if it wasn't him, mm-hmm. it was going to be somebody else. Yeah. Well, Madison Grant is another one. Oh, tell us about Madison Grant. Oh, girl. Well, we won't spend too too much time on him, but he was basically a lawyer and zoologist and uh-huh. eugenicist who basically wrote a book called Passing of the Great Race. Okay. That sounds like a bad one. Okay. <laughs> that advocated for forced sterilization. Whoa. And, Whoa. Yes. And so the rationale for eugenics or forced sterilization being used was to be able to keep flawed characteristics or um, mm. differently abled people, blind, deaf, whatever the case may be from passing on potentially those traits to their children. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this was going on in the United States to, to a certain extent without people's knowledge, they were going for whatever reason, whether it be an issue or after having had a child and being sterilized after and not realizing, and this was happening across all races in the U S but obviously because of some of these thoughts or perceptions of black people it was happening to to black people as Whoa. well as a form of birth control mm-hmm. um or to keep black people from continuing to procreate and i know at least here in north carolina where i am mm-hmm. there were more than seven thousand people uh for uh sterilized yeah in the state of north carolina through eugenics Jeez. and they had their last last case in the u.s was in 1981 Whoa. wow yes mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. recent so, mm-hmm. so it's no wonder then that black people will have come to distrust science. Like mm-hmm. it's no wonder. Um, yeah. And when it comes to trust in science, we as black women also have to contend with the legacy of Henrietta Lacks. Have y'all heard of her? Yeah, mm-hmm. Henrietta. Yes. So Henrietta Lacks was a Virginian tobacco farmer who was treated at Johns Hopkins for an adenocarcinoma of the cervix in 1951. So Henrietta Lacks was not informed that her cells were being taken and cultured and they were named HeLa cells. um, And then she died later that year. So her cells were taken and cultured. They are still used to this day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know that they've done some really revolutionary things with her cells because she had something called immortalized cells. Yeah. And those cells are really great because they keep dividing Mm -hmm. and they have at the ends of the gene something called a telomere, which actually when the cell keeps dividing, Mm -hmm. that telomere telomere gets shorter shorter and shorter and shorter. And so hers did not. Her cells, her primary cells did not have telomeres or tumor suppressor mm-hmm. genes that were altered. So they just kept growing, yeah. making her cells immortal. And that explains you know, a lot, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so About she, why had she, yeah. 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 Wow. she had a gold mine. Yeah. Yeah. She had a gold mine in terms of what was in her body because her cells were able to help with 
polio eradication. Mm -hmm. They have implications in virology, Mm -hmm. genetics, and even like space microbiology. Yeah. All of these different uses of her cells. I mean, them bad boys was like multiplying every 20 to 24 hours. Right. And this really gave, um, you know, Johns Hopkins was, of course, a leader in science and medicine. But this really (laughs) propelled them because number of companies across the world were trying to get some type of immortalized cell. And I remember I actually taught students about this. They were they would always take tumor samples from patients as part of the treatment. And mm-hmm. once they took her tumor, they would put it in a Petri dish. And actually, the lady working with them, she went on her lunch break thinking, like, these cells are not going to grow. And, you know, she came back and they were still adherent to the plate and those type of things. So these cells are very, very critical. And they've been, you know, they're still, we use them today. I literally used them probably two months ago while the academic year was there working with students. Yeah, it's funny. My first time hearing about HeLa cells, well, not, not funny, my first time hearing about HeLa cells was in graduate school. And um, one of the uh, more senior graduate students, he was like, okay, we're going to be splitting cells today. These are HeLa cells. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, what's a HeLa cell? And he was like, well, actually, and he started, he just told me like Henrietta Lacks. When I did the research on my own girl, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. <laughs> I, yeah. I hadn't heard of any of this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, those are some really critical cells. Um, So that's definitely really, really critical and important as it relates to our women. But, you know, black men have also been subjected to scientific racism before. So have y'all heard? Yeah. Have y'all heard of the Tuskegee syphilis studies? I have. Mm-hmm. I yeah. have. I think that was probably the first one I heard of that made me say, what? <laughs> right. <laughs> but this happened um, in 1932 is when the study started. It's officially the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in African-American men. And this actually happened in Alabama. But the reason it's called Tuskegee is uh, Tuskegee University actually partnered um, with the group that performed this study. If you're wondering who's money and whose idea was behind it it actually was the united states public health service so this is a u.s government funded public health organization that supported this study which is crazy you know a lot of the things we talked about so far were you know scientists doing things on their own but this is a government supported yeah this is a government supported thing that happened which is ridiculous so Um, The study went on for about 40 years. It happened in, like I said, 1932. And what happened was there was about 600 men that were in the study. They were promised free health care. They came from kind of an impoverished area. They were given rides back and forth to medical clinics. And they were told they were being treated for bad blood, which at the time, this is something that black people uh, were accustomed to. was essentially like an infection, right? Um, So out of the 600 people that participated, about 400, so uh, 399 actually, did have syphilis. Um, And throughout the study, they actually were never told they had it. A lot of people were just getting placebos, which is just essentially like, you know, water or saline shot, nothing to actually treat the disease. Um, But they were given um, the placebos and arsenic and all these different random treatments to see what effect um, syphilis had on people. But in 1947, penicillin Uh was actually introduced and penicillin is the gold standard for syphilis. So although, yeah, it's really crazy because in 1947 they came out with penicillin, but 
like I said, this study ended in 1972. So they let. So what was happening? A girl. Mm. They, I don't know. Listen. They let all of these men continue to have syphilis and syphilis can lead to uh, blindness. It can be passed to your partner mm-hmm. and to your children. It has oh some very goodness. detrimental effects. So for 40 years, although they had the cure to it, they said, hmm, well, we don't know what long-term syphilis effects look like. So let's just let these black men have syphilis. And oh even gosh. though, yeah, we told mm-hmm. them the study would only go for six months, let's just last let it last for 40 years um, and see what happens. Oh. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. 40 years is a very long time when you said the the years i was like oh my gosh 1932 to 1972 and the crazy part about that too and correct me if i'm if i'm wrong dr devin they actually actively prevented some of the study participants from actually seeking penicillin Mm -hmm. you know when they knew that it would work they actually prevented them from getting penicillin treatment Again, because absolutely, you're absolutely right, because it wasn't about actually helping the black men and cure the disease. At this point, it became a study. We want to see what syphilis looks like in somebody who's had it for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40. So instead of being a person, they became a data point. And because Mm -hmm. of this, you know, they didn't want them affecting that result, which is um, really, really disheartening to hear. And even more sad yeah. to know it is supported by, it was at the time supported by the um, Public Health Service United States. So this was um, ethics mm-hmm. violation after <laughs> ethics violation after mm-hmm. ethics violation. And I'm glad you said that because uh, there was a whistleblower. Uh, it was actually a white gentleman, Peter Buxton, and he actually worked for the Public Health Services and he brought the attention of this study you know out this really is critical because although we are very you know black 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 we still want to <laughs> talk about black 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 and <laughs> black black you know it's juneteenth <laughs> all year long so you know That's we want right. to talk about the power of allies because we do know there are so many allies out there that actually do have seat to the table and can mm-hmm. you know push um some of these aspects of racism out mm-hmm I've heard this way. I've heard. I, I really like this. That ally is not just a noun. Ally is a verb. Mm, yes. I oh yeah. That. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't just say I'm an ally. I'm an ally. It, you have to do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's not good enough just to like post a filter up that says you're an ally for whatever. You have to be talking to leaders in Congress. You have to be rallying in the streets. You have to be doing things. So I'm totally on board. Um, But all these things led to eventual changes that we have in the country, the Belmont report. um, And this is something that was able to put a foundation for some ethical principles that we Mm -hmm. have as it relates to medicine and Mm -hmm. science. And then even the introduction of something we use in institutions, which is called an IRB, it's Mm -hmm. um, institutional review board. So this is a panel of scientists that will look at your experiment to make sure you're not violating any ethical code so you know those scenarios that we've talked about whether it's henrietta Lacks or the syphilis studies or all of the other scientists we've previously mentioned they really do give a strong argument as to why Mm -hmm. people of color are very resistant to medicine i mean Mm -hmm. who wouldn't be after knowing what they've done Mm -hmm. and we and i think that one of the reasons why we started with you know such a i guess grim issue with regard to science is not to get people to further reinforce those fears but to kind of Mm -hmm. sit those fears on their heads and say 
here is what we understand historically we have been dealt dealing with, you know, and what we want to do is kind of address that elephant in the room. We want people to understand and know like, hey, we get it. We understand historically what science has been used to do. Right. And and those things weren't right. Right. But Mm -hmm. now that we can sit in that and acknowledge that, let's talk about how we've grown as a society and as a country to now have policies and guidelines to help protect us so that we can get more black and brown people going to the doctor regularly checking absolutely uh, trusting Mm -hmm. their physician all of these things because it matters you know our Mm -hmm. health matters that we see our doctors that we trust our clinicians that we are empowered and capable of asking questions of our provider and letting them know when we don't understand certain things or want to know more about our prognosis or diagnosis. Yeah. And that's a two way street Mm because it's part letting those providers know about their implicit bias. Mm -hmm. Um, And then again, yeah, also, you know, um, yeah, letting uh, our people know that they need to take their health matters into their own hands before Mm -hmm. it's too late. Mm -hmm. You can be an advocate. You don't have to be a PhD scientist to understand your diagnosis or prognosis or what your medication says and why you can't skip your insulin or, you know, all of these things. Like these are important things that we want the community to feel empowered learning and and discussing. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Well, we have talked about so many great things. Absolutely. Yep. I think, you know, I don't know about y'all, but we, we definitely tied in quite a bit of stuff. Yeah. Everyone kind of understands where we started from. So again, we're going to yeah. give you no cap science. We're going to be laughing. We're going to be doing everything we need to. But we do understand there's a huge elephant in the room about this. And we want to make sure that you know the history you know our stance and you know where we're going moving forward. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think we did that for sure. Yes, right. Yes, yes. So as we wrap up our episode, we want to make sure we end on a note that is bright. And this week we're going to talk about our black brilliance. Uh, so the black brilliance for this week is Dr. Kismika Corbett. So ladies, have you heard of Dr. Corbett? Oh, yes. yes. All her black yep. girl magic. Yes. Yep. So Dr. Corbett, if you haven't heard of her, she's one of the key scientists in developing the COVID-19 vaccine. You've seen her on CNN. You've seen her on science, all kinds of places. And she is our Black Brilliance of the Week. So she's one of the lead viral immunologists. She actually works for the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease. And she's a leader of the team that's going to try to get us out of the house permanently. So we're tired of being in here and we want to support and uplift Dr. Corbett. So she's our black brilliance. Yes. And speak her name. Yes. We want our listeners for Science for the Culture podcast to tune in next week where we will be dropping some more gems and no cap science. And we're actually going to be trying to empower you guys on how to be able to figure out what's cap and what's not. Yep. Uh, conspiracy theory versus not conspiracy theory. So all your YouTubing and that uh, much needed that woke friend that you got is always posting something about 5G towers. We want to teach you how to be able to look <laughs> through all of that. All right, listeners, we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Science for the Culture, your no cap science podcast. 
Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Science for the Culture. And if you like this episode, please subscribe via your favorite streaming platform, share with a friend, or submit a rating on iTunes. We're Science for the Culture, myth-busting caps, one scientific fact at a time.